We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. Andy and Don, all one word. There you can listen to old archive shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, good, good morning, to see Scott. You. Morning, Scott. Going to start off with principal uh, principal residence exemptions. The principal residence exemption, otherwise the short form is the pre mm-hmm. P R E. And for all of us that own a home, we know that obviously there's some significant tax saving opportunities mm-hmm. uh, by using the principal residence exemption. So the majority of Canadians that own a home have access to this, but you do have to qualify, and there are some rules and some guidelines around this, and also some opportunities to think about as well. So the first thing to think about is, well, what type of property qualifies for the principal residence exemption? Mm-hmm. Well, the obvious one we think about is our home. Your house, yeah. But in addition to your house, it could be uh, an apartment or a unit in a duplex. Mm-hmm. It could be an apartment building or, or in a condo or condo unit. It could be a cottage. Mm-hmm. And it can also be a mobile home. Mm. It could also be a trailer. And it can also be a houseboat. Wow. Now, <laughs> on the last three, on the last three, I'm thinking about that. A lot of times they don't actually go up in value. It's yes. hard yeah, to see yeah. the, the benefit to that. But if you, um, Maybe that's why they included those. Yeah. You do certain <laughs> improvements to your property or mm-hmm. to your houseboat or to your mobile home. Um, you may actually see an increase in the value of that depending on its location, et cetera. So they do qualify. And, uh, so we'll talk, we'll get into some of the rules about occupancy, et cetera, into that as well. Um, and uh, it may also be if you're in a co-op housing situation where you've got a share of that co-op corporation, you mm-hmm. can when you sell that, you actually qualify for the principal residence exemption as well. Mm-hmm. So ownership, when we talk about ownership, basically you have to have owned the property at any time in the year right. that it was sold. And uh, ownership can be a sole ownership just by yourself. You could own it in joint tenancy, or you could also own it as tenants in common. And it used to be that a trust could actually own that, or personal trust, and it could also claim the personal exemption as well, the uh, principal residence exemption, I mean. So that was prior to 2016. So the, that's out the window now. But you still can hold your principal residence inside a trust today, and that is something called an alter ego trust or a spouse or, spouse or common law partner trust or a joint spousal trust. And that's an interesting planning opportunity where, um, and I've had situations and I do have existing situations where, um, a widowed individual, she, um, was living in her home and the, uh, having no children, uh, to leave the home or her estate to one of the things she was concerned about was probate tax on her principal residence. Mm-hmm. So she knew it was going to be tax free on the sale at her death, but, um, uh, the probate tax would apply to it. Right. And she didn't want to put it in joint ownership with anybody. That didn't make any sense either. So you can transfer the ownership of your home, your principal residence, into a trust that you create that's for your benefit. Mm-hmm. So in this case, they're called an alter ego trust. Um, so if it was for you, it'd be the Scott Thompson alter ego trust. Mm-hmm. Then you transfer the ownership of that home from being in your name personally to being owned by the trust. Right. And now what happens is that at death, and that's a tax-free transfer into that trust, at death, that trust document will dictate how that money, the proceeds of the sale, 
uh, and it qualifies for the principal residence, how that money will be distributed amongst your heirs. Mm -hmm. So if you've got cousins, sisters, brothers, wow. mm -hmm. and a beautiful part of that is no probate tax. Yeah. So if you're talking about a million dollar property, yeah. you know, you're looking at $15,000 of probate tax, which is saved in that process. So mm -hmm. Um, an alter ego trust is something to consider. And the nice thing is if the only thing in your alter ego trust is just your principal residence, you don't even need to bother filing a tax return because it's a null. There's no income being right. generated by that as well. And these cost about how much, Andy? Uh, you're probably looking at about 1500 to $2,500 to set them up. So there's some soft costs initially, but certainly some savings. Yeah, of all 15000 less. Yeah, that's not know, a bad 2500 I'll take that anyway. <laughs> that's a good deal. But I guess you do want to be... You know, thinking you're going to live in that house till the end type of thing. Uh, well, that's, and even that's not a big concern in the sense that if the home was sold while that is held within the alter ego trust, now the cash, the proceeds from the sale is now sitting inside your trust right. and it would now be invested for you and it'd be generating an income. Now you'd have to file a tax return each year, but the same rules would apply at death. It would be distributed based on your mm -hmm. wishes. Right. So it, it's often, um, uh, it's certainly a transition. It may make sense to perhaps you might wait till you move out of the home, but a lot of times people want to stay in their home as long as possible. And again, it avoids probate even when it's in cash. Exactly. Yeah. Either way, using the alter ego trust uh, it avoids it. And and the only thing with that is that you have to be over the age of 65 mm -hmm. to be able to take advantage of that. So it is a special trust that allows um, the principal residence exemption to continue So as they well. have to show their ID, in other words. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Get an ID at 65. That's good. <laughs> they have to, when the lawyer draws it up, they're right. gonna, it won't qualify yeah. unless you're 65. Yes. Um, now, you cannot qualify for the principal residence exemption if your property is owned by a corporation. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of times people will have properties that might be in a corporation either through um, a structure where they may have had some rental properties and then there was a conversion to a principal residence. And we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Now, the other rule about a principal residence is that you have to be, it's called the ordinarily inhabited rule. Ordinarily inhabited. And basically, that means that the property must be ordinarily inhabited by the owner, uh, a current or former spouse, a current or, uh, or former partner, uh, common law partner, or a child. Mm -hmm. And um, that ordinary inhabited test is based on facts, typically. So sometimes you may be required to prove the facts or provide facts. But you don't have to be in this. This is not 24-7. You're living in your home. It could be a property that you're inhabiting for a very short period of time in the year. Maybe you're only occupying it during vacation. And it could even be a foreign property, foreign vacation property may qualify as well. But uh, generally, so if you think about a cottage, for example, you might use it, uh, say you're only using it for, you know, weekends for, you know, six or yeah. ten, 10 weekends a year. Uh, that would be considered ordinarily inhabited and mm -hmm. it would still qualify yeah. for the principal residence exemption if it made sense. And uh, common law partners and same-sex couples also apply to that, to that rule in terms of ordinarily inhabited as well. So um, the years of ownership, and this goes back to some old rules. If you owned this home prior to 1982, it was possible for two members of the family to each have a principal residence exemption on two different properties. Mm -hmm. So in those days, back pre-82, uh, pre if you had a cottage and a home in the city, uh, mm -hmm. typically yeah, one would have, mm -hmm. you know, one would be the principal residence owner on the cottage and the other would be the one on the city. After 1981, that was... Um, 
Ixnate, no, yeah. no longer yeah. anymore. Good old days. <laughs> the good old days. Mm. And uh, so now um, a, a cup, a common law partners, husband and wife, or even an unmarried minor, minor child, you can only have the one principal residence. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the next thing that we look at is the adjacent land rule. And typically a principal residence will include the land upon which the housing unit stands up to a half an hectare or less. And that's typically, so if you're at half a hectare or less, don't tell me what that is. In, I don't know what that is in conversions mm-hmm. to acres. Well, maybe we'll, we'll do that up. in the commercial and we'll let <laughs> you know. But um, uh, if you have excess of a half a hectare, half a hectare, then um, it will come down to a sp- specific situation. It might be that in order to for the, it's called the use and enjoyment test. So mm-hmm. if you need to use additional property outside of half a hectare to be able to enjoy the property, now this could fall into a situation where uh, you might have an estate lot subdivision where everybody's situation is, you know, two hectares, right? right? And that, that, that was the minimum zoning size for mm-hmm. every property <clears throat> in your development. Right. So in which case you would probably qualify without any, any issues. Um, it might depend on the location of the house on the lot. So if you have a one hectare lot instead of a half hectare lot, but your property, your home is at the back of the lot and mm-hmm. you need the rest of it to, you know, to wind your way into right. your property secluded yeah. at the back, then that may also qualify as well. Um, and that also might be another issue in terms of accessing um, public roads too. Mm-hmm. The, the size might be over half a hectare. <coughs> and and right. that half a hectare, nice thing, you know, Mr. Google just uh, looked this up and it's 1.236 acres. So One just- point Two three six, two, three, six acres. acres. So just over an acre. So uh, you have no issues if you have a house plus one point two three six acres. It's just if it's over that, then you have to look at those interesting examples, as Andy is mentioning, or if it's landlocked, or if you have a frontage to a, a lake which you nobody could build there before. There's there's a whole lot of rules that apply to that, and therefore you can get more than that one point two three six six acres or half a hectare. Mm-hmm. Um, now, <clears throat> the um, I know that uh, the, the, it used to be simple when you sold a property. I mean, you basically didn't even have to claim it in the past. Yeah. And this prior to 2016, you could you sell your home. It was your principal residence. You rolled over into another home, or you took the investments and you started to. If you didn't buy another home, no big deal. And uh, but now it all has to be documented mm-hmm. from 2016 and 2017 tax year onward. You must fill out uh, a form to which would include what was the address of the property, the date it was acquired, the proceeds of disposition, uh, you know, what you what you got for it when you sold it, and then basically that calculation is going to also identify where did you own other properties, and maybe there maybe the whole amount of the gain on your home right. is not going to be exempt from tax, and. So one of the areas that kind of gets into uh, tricky things is if you build on vacant land and also if you change, if you have multiple use properties or if you change the use of your property. So building on vacant land, land by itself does not qualify. Mm -hmm. So any increase in the value of your land is going to be subject to uh, capital gains tax. Mm -hmm. So the, the basic rule there is that you've got one year. Mm -hmm. So if you owned a lot and you paid 10,000 for it, Five years later, it's worth fifty thousand, and right. now you start to build. Yeah. Then you will have to pay tax on forty thousand of capital gains. Right. So the ten thousand minus the, the the value of it when we started yeah. to build. 
that would be subject to capital gains tax. But wouldn't that tax be a sub- at the time you sold the property? At the so- when you sell the property. So, so that could be 20 years later. Yeah, yeah, it could be 20 years later, exactly. Um, multiple use properties, there's a couple of uh, tricks there, but sometimes you might have um, uh, a principal residence where you you haven't changed anything, but let's say you're renting a bedroom right? and you have some ancillary income from that. Typically, you're going to get, and you've never claimed any capital cost allowance or in other words, depreciated the value of your property, then uh, you'd be you'd be eligible for the full principal residence exemption. Mm-hmm. But let's say you had a separate business that was going on, it was a duplex or a triplex, then you're only going to get a partial exemption. So it's going to be prorated based on the size of each of those areas. And then the next big area is the change of use rules. So typically what happens is you have somebody who has a principal residence and it's now being changed to an income property, or you have an income property which is being changed to a principal residence, and there's some ins and outs that we want to talk about. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. 905-529-7165. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're talking about principal residence. The principal residence exemption and uh, free money. Free, no tax. Gotta like that, right? man. Yeah, this, is, still, this is the deal. Still, there's always there. talking about getting rid of this too. Every election, there's always one of those things. Are they going to depending who gets in, is one of those parties thinking about tinkering with this? Yes. And I know that came in the last election, Mm. but thankfully, knock on wood, nothing's happened. Well, before everybody goes out and sells their home. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Typically, uh, I mean, I'd be shocked if there was a change in from principal residence exemption being tax-free to suddenly taxed. There would probably be, as of this date, your gain is free, mm-hmm. and then from here on, you're going to be taxed. Yeah, so, so grandfathering, uh, grandfathering per, uh, per se. So this is uh, one, a lot of times we see what a change in, in change in use. Mm-hmm. And so the first change of use is you're sitting in your principal residence and you decide to convert it to an income property. And um, typically, what happens then is you're deemed to have disposed of your principal residence at fair market value as soon as it's changed to an income property. And that fair market value is an important number to have. It's the new adjusted cost base. In other words, if you, uh, at the time of change, if your property was worth 600000 that's the new base. So any gain going forward would be taxed on the income property. Uh, but the capital gain exemption would still exist on the first 600000 And um, But there is a planning opportunity around that. And this is particularly for somebody who it may be a temporary situation. So let's say you've, you're moving to a different part of the country for a job. Um, a different country for a job, you actually have a four-year period where if you do, if you remain a resident of Canada, uh, unless you was, uh, your employer required you to leave the country, mm-hmm. but uh, if you remain a resident of Canada and you don't uh, own another property that you deem as, uh, as a principal residence and you've never claimed capital cost allowance during the period, you can have a four-year hiatus where you don't have to worry about the principal, uh, paying tax on right, the gain. Right. So you could actually move back into the property without any issues as well. And then um, if you're an income producing, if you're moving from an income producing property back to a principal residence, 
the same dis- deemed disposition rules apply, and uh, you would have to pay tax uh, on that fair market value. But you can make an election to defer the deemed disposition, and again, you've got the four years going the other way. So it's uh, basically you've got a four-year window to be able to play with uh, before you might have to pay tax right. on the principal residence exemption conversion to an income property. And uh, so if we were looking at a quick example, um, well, let's say Mr. Will Move and his family lived in a house from September 1993 to October 2002. So I think that's 10 years. Uh, in October 2002, Will and his family moved into a rental property and rented their previous home to a third party. Then, uh, eight years later, in uh, 2010, Will and his family moved back into the house and lived in there until it was sold in 2016. So what would happen? So the tax planning would be uh, from 1993 to 2002, that's an, he's ordinarily inhabited the property, and so there'd be no capital gains uh, issue there. From 2003 to 2006, if he files the uh, Section 45-2 election, which is the four-year period, which he can have that grace of, of mm-hmm. still a principal residence. Mm-hmm. And then 2010, uh, he moves back in. Uh, to 2016, he again ordinarily is inhabiting the property. So the calculation would be uh, is 24 years period, uh, 24 years total, of which uh, there's 10 years where he ordinarily inhabited, four years, which is the exemption, and then another seven years that he was back in the property. So the calculation would be 22 over 24, which is 91.7 percent of the sale price mm-hmm. will be exempt from tax. Right. So, if you've had a sort of series of changes in terms of your property, make sure you get some good tax advice, and so that you can maximize your principal residence exemption. Mm-hmm. And you know, it does get a little more complicated when you have a U.S. citizen um, live here in Canada, and they think, okay, well, that's no problem. I'll buy a house, and and it. It grows in value and it's, and it's a principal residence. So it's tax-free here in Canada. They do not have a complete tax-free growth in the U.S. And being a U.S. citizen, you have to file, as long as you anywhere in the world you, you live, you still have to file a tax return. Mm-hmm. One of the few countries, if not the only one I know of anyway, but it's maybe the only country that it's based on citizenship, whereas most countries are based on residency. Mm-hmm. So in Canada, if we make, you know, cut our ties and we move to Singapore for a decade and move back, well, we don't have to file tax returns for both Singapore and Canada. We are now paying tax only in Singapore. Right. Where the U.S., you moved to Singapore for 10 years, you're still, you're filing tax returns in Singapore and the U.S. Mm-hmm. So this is where it gets very complicated. So you're, and, and again, definitely get a U.S. cross-border tax accountant because I, I recently came across a situation and I'll use some round numbers, but let's say this couple, one is a Canadian and one was born in, let's call it Ohio, mm-hmm. for argument's sake. And and she, she lived in Ohio, and then she moved here years ago, and they bought a house for a million dollars. Well, let's say now the house is worth $2 million. Right off the bat, so no problem, they're going to sell that $2 million home, and they're going to move to a different house now. Well, not quite so fast. Half of that growth is the, is the in this case, the husband's, who it's... Canadian, it's tax-free, principal right. resident rules, as Andy is talking about. The other half, well, it's still tax-free in Canada, but they have to report this capital gain. Mm-hmm. And in the U.S., they're only allowed to make $250,000 
in another country as a non-resident. Right. Okay. And that's 250,000 US dollars. So in this case, there's a $500,000 capital gain. She would have to take off 333,000 in Canadian dollars. Mm-hmm. And the difference would be 166,000 Canadian. And that's what she'd have to be taxed on in the US. So some planning here, do you even put it in joint ownership? Mm, you know, right. why not just have it in the husband's name and not have it in the husband and the wife's name? Because the husband was, in this case, a Canadian resident. Mm-hmm. Um, so this would be a tax planning option. Or as it gets closer and closer, maybe you sell a house and move to a different house. It restarts the whole capital gains again because you've now got a new um, book value mm-hmm. and it starts growing again. So lots of considerations if you're a U.S. Um, citizen living in Canada. And again, if you're two couples, um, that would multiply that um, two f- 250,000 capital gains for both spouse. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that exemption, and that's 250,000 U.S. capital gains. Mm-hmm. Now, I wonder if you if you relinquished your American citizenship is that's sort of planning after the fact, the yes. transactions already yeah. happened, but if in advance of this, if they had done that, would they have been exempt, I wonder? I, I'm going to guess that they do draw a line in the sand yeah. um, at the time it's done. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they say, okay, you relinquish your U.S. citizenship on this date and all capital gains to this date are taxable or not taxable, depending if you get exemptions or not. Yes. And anything going forward, you no longer have to worry about the um, U.S. citizenship. You no longer get these um, social security from the right. U.S. Right. And that's always what's... A lot of people are saying, well, I won't get my social security. Then there's a whole bunch of the people says, well, I was, I moved to Canada when I was five years old. Yeah. I'm not getting social security anyway. <laughs> That's right. This means nothing. And there is a bit of a lineup right now relinquishing the, the U.S. citizenship because of all the tax they have to pay and the double taxation. Mm-hmm. And certain things, as one person put it and I was reading, it's uh, really the worst of both worlds because mm-hmm. you're paying tax um, in Canada and the U.S., and certain things, for example, the tax-free savings account is a fantastic vehicle here in Canada. We talk about it all the time. However, the U.S. doesn't recognize that. And therefore, any growth inside that tax-free savings account, they have to pay tax on that every year. And they have to fill a, a little mini tax return for that every year. Mm-hmm. It still may be adva- advantageous, but the, the extra costs and accounting fees probably wipes out any advantage at all. Mm-hmm. So it's... It is tr- very tricky, and again, uh, if this is kind of you know hitting any bells with any of the listeners out there, you should probably speak to your um, U.S. tax accountant about these issues and see if this applies to you because it's extremely important. And boy, the IRS and the states, they are relentless. Mm-hmm. Okay, they are definitely relentless, and they will, and particularly as the deficits are growing, they are going after a lot of the um, Can- uh, U.S. citizens living in Canada. Plus, there's a lot more sharing of the data. And it's easier to go after them because there is a treaty between the two countries and they are very, very easily to accessible in terms of the information. And then the result, there is that two-faced thing that they talked about mm. as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't get into that. Okay. <laughs> Don? Uh, I didn't say two-faced, you know. No, that was uh, Mr. Trump. But anyway, <laughs> on a different note, um, so we were talking about prison, principal residence and now you're thinking, okay, do I really want to keep my house? I know it's a great tax uh, planning strategy to keep it, it, it in, and, and we can always move it into a trust so there's no probate. But you know what? It's a large part of my net worth. And am I underliving? 
am I not having as much fun as I could be having? Mm-hmm. I've already supplied my kids with an education. Have I, I've already done everything. Mm-hmm. You know, why don't I maybe consider selling it and renting? Oh my gosh, that's a terrible thing to say in Canada. It's Mo- almost a mobile like, home or a houseboat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have have fun. But you know what? It's interesting. Depending on your age, and this is where again you have to see a financial planner. Go through the pros and cons. I'm going to go through a, a few scenarios here. So right off the bat, you sell your that family home. It used to have a driveway and a walkway and some grass to cut, and you're going to rent. And let's say you're going to rent an a, apartment. Well, right out of the way, you're saying, oh, this is a lot easier. Mm-hmm. I got a turnkey situation. I can walk away and I can go on a cruise for a month. I don't have to worry about my house. I don't have to worry about any repairs. I don't have to worry about somebody picking up my mail. It The stress of having not having a house, mm-hmm. particularly if you're very mobile mm-hmm. uh, in retirement, it, it's, it's a great thing. Now, I know some people are actually having a family's move into their house. Mm-hmm. And I've uh, recently had a client move to uh, temporarily use a vacation for three months and they're going to Columbia and they're uh, just going to you know, rent out their house for three months. Wow. Okay. And that way somebody's at least looking after it. Mm-hmm. But again, it's still, it's in the back of your mind. Mm-hmm. You still have to look after it, right? So you don't, it, it's, it's just a bit more extra stress. The other part is, as Andy was talking about, you do get this tax-free windfall from your principal resident. Mm-hmm. So you also have this money and it's it never have to pay tax on it. And you can actually move this money into something else that either is paying dividends. Mm-hmm. And if your income's under 44,000 a year, you don't pay tax on those dividends. Or you can put it in, Andy and I have talked about many times, T series, T as in Tom. And what that does, it you're basically paying out the principal first where you pay no tax on that. So there's a lot of uh, ways to get an income from that house as opposed to continual paying off, uh, paying up, because there's always the expenses of having a house. Sure. Okay, rather than renting. No, renting is not exactly uh, inexpensive. We'll go over that too. Um, with that money though, I find a lot of these seniors that are looking at perhaps selling their house, they are often in a position they say, no, I don't have that extra money. It's actually crippling my lifestyle a bit. Mm-hmm. I have this beautiful house, but I can't do all the things I want to do. And one thing they can't do is they, they're not tax, they're not topping up their tax-free savings account. So they would be able to put in 63500 for each spouse into a tax-free savings account. And next year, it'll be, it's, it's going up by 6000 695 yeah. 695 Almost $70,000 each. So in less than a month, we'll be able to call it, yeah. Seven, again, we won't call it 70000 because the penalty to go over that, that sixty nine five. So we will just round it to that sixty nine five <laughs> number, okay? Um, and you can at least have that guaranteed to be having tax-free growth. Um, also, you know, nobody knows the real estate market. Is it going to go up? Is it going to go down? Is it staying sideways for a while? It's certainly, uh, I know every year, I, at this time of year, I always hear the forecast from real, real estate companies. Mm-hmm. And I swear it's never had a down year. <laughs> okay. It's in their best interest saying, oh yeah, I expect a 7% growth rate in your house next year mm-hmm. because they'll never, I've never heard them say oh, there'll be a negative year in the real estate market, even though there has been. So that being the case, you can lock in that growth. Now, the cons of selling and renting, um, you may not be able to decorate the way you may want to. Mm-hmm. There may be some rules. Your landlord said, no, you can't do this. You can't Or you do may that. not be able to have pets or something pets like that. Pets is another right, one. That's, that's a, a big one. <coughs> that's a huge one. Pets is a very large one. Trying to find a place that allows pets. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's a big one too. Um, 
there may be a little loss of privacy because you are gone from a, a certain kind of lifestyle in a kind of your suburbium home to a, an apartment. Mm-hmm. Now, that would be the same if you went to a condo too, but it's just a different way of, of living. Mm-hmm. And it may take some getting used to. Um, you may also, on the, on the other side, what if the house continues to rise? You're giving, giving up on some of that tax-free growth. Mm-hmm. So there's that, down, that side too. But again, that's the crystal ball. Um, downsizing, a lot of people say, well, maybe I'll just downsize. And the good thing about downsizing, you're still in the real estate market. So therefore, if it does continue to rise, great. Mm-hmm. But if it does go down, you're also going down with it, okay? But we do find a lot of the time when you're downsizing to a condo, the condo costs, so that condo fee, and honestly, uh, the condo prices are quite high from a square footage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's rare that we're finding an average home being able to get any extra money out of this mm. by so-called downsizing. The only thing they're downsizing is the square footage. Yeah. True. Yeah. They're, okay, they're not downsizing the price. Yeah. yeah. And so what, what we have here is a situation, and I'll, I'll give you a scenario of, uh, say, you know, here's your $600,000 home, and you're looking at it, and the extra cost of having that house is, first of all, you have property taxes, and let's say they cost 400 a month, kind of common. You have extra maintenance fees because there's always things you got to fix. Mm-hmm. And let's say it's 300 a month just to upkeep your house. You have an extra insurance because you have to insure the building, mm-hmm. not just the content. So at least 100 a month there. And you have heating costs and electricity costs that are generally about 100 more a month than renting. So off, right off the get-go, you're about $900 a month extra to own a house, mm-hmm. okay, than renting. So if you said, okay, I have, should I... Is it worthwhile for me to rent, even if the rent is $2,000 a month? Mm-hmm. We'll get to that in a right after the break. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. We're talking about selling your home and renting. Yes, I know. And it seems like an odd thing to say these days because a lot of people keep that principal residence like, I got that in my back pocket. And they never want to get rid of it. It's going to my kids. Mm -hmm. Well, again, at the end of the day, it's still saying, okay, how much fun can I pack into my life? Mm -hmm. And what can I do before my mobility becomes an issue? So again, a lot of people are turning to renting and selling that principal house. So I looked through the numbers, and if you had this $600,000 house, as I said just before the break, the extra cost per month versus renting is about 900 a month between taxes, maintenance, insurance, and heating. If you were renting, and it cost you, say, $2,000 a month, you would have, first of all, you have $600,000 you just got from selling your house. You could max out those tax-free savings accounts. There's 127000 that could go to a TFSA. Then you would have $473,000 that you could put into an investment that pays you either dividends or return of capital. Again, you wouldn't pay tax on this. Mm-hmm. So there'd be no difference in income tax if you plan it out properly. And at the end of the day, you were paying $900 more a month for the house. It's $2,000 for rent. So you really only need $1,100 a month out of your investments, mm-hmm. assuming you were able to afford the cost at your house. 
if you couldn't afford it, then of course you had to sell. You had no choice to sell anyway. Right. But if you actually had that choice, you now have to take 1100 more a month out of your investments to pay for that rent, which you, if you were to say, I'm going to take 2%, 4% out of my uh, investments every year, you're allowed to take out 24000 a year mm-hmm. out of your investments. Well, you're only taking out 13000 That leaves you with a lot of extra money per year that you could spend on trips, mm-hmm. spend on whatever you like. Basically, you can increase your lifestyle by $900 a month mm-hmm. by renting and still only take out 4% payout out of your investments and- Therefore, you're still not touching the principal of mm-hmm. 4%. Right. In fact, your principals may continue to grow. Mm-hmm. And you're not touching your tax-free savings account. In, in fact, we'd be topping that up each year, right. which gives you a great estate value, makes it so much easier from an estate side for the kids. Because now at death, the second death of you and your husband or wife, whichever the case is, passes that on, it goes to the kids tax-free and no probate. Again, if you name the kids as beneficiaries on the TFSAs. Mm-hmm. So great way to... Make sure you don't underlive. Get great value of your house. The kids are still getting a great inheritance down the road, mm-hmm. and you're getting a lot more fun. Mm. And I think even too, the only thing I would add to that is that that extra income, while when you're in your early stages of retirement, that's going to be fun money, right? You're going to be able to enjoy it and do yeah, things. Later on, that could be healthcare or long-term care money. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. it just transitions over time. If you have increased medical costs later on in life, then you've got the cash flow there to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And so that means you're not going to be relying on family or friends to be right. able to help you out at yeah. that stage as well. And if you continued owning your house, where were you going to get that 900 a month That's right. to make those payments on healthcare costs Yeah, exactly. or, or cruises? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fun or healthcare costs, which well, might and be. We, and we've had this discussion about reverses, reverse mortgages. Yes. And, like and does that make yeah. sense? And boy, it's, uh, and that's a minefield as well. At, at the market. end of the day, this is why you have a financial planner mm-hmm. is to work out, here are your options. This one makes the most sense for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, switching gears just a little bit, I want to talk uh, about um, shareholder loans. Mm-hmm. And shareholder loans are essentially... Well, there's two ways people have a shareholder. If you own your own company and you have shares in that company and mm-hmm. you're uh, typically like an owner-manager situation and you're running your business, you may have loaned money to your company and typically that can come out of your company f- and tax-free back to you at any time. Mm-hmm. Now, the opposite is true too, where sometimes people take money out of their corporation mm-hmm. to give themselves a loan. And the Income Tax Act is pretty clear on this, and really it's designed to prevent the extraction of funds without it being taxed in the normal route, either as a dividend or as a salary or a repayment of a shareholder loan. So if it's not one of those three things, then it's considered a an advance or a loan to a shareholder. And uh, the general rules around this is that the full principle of the loan would be included in your income of the recipient of the loan unless the money is paid back within one within the taxation year uh, that the loan is made. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you can take 50000 loan from your company, but you have to pay it back within 12 months. Right. Okay. And uh, so th- then there's going to be issues around, are you paying interest on it or, uh, or not? And that might be another issue as well. Mm-hmm. But in general, those there's some exceptions to this where you can if you make that repayment within one year, if the loan is for ordinary course of business or it's to a non-resident person. But there's also a couple of other exceptions where you can make a loan to an employee or to yourself as a shareholder. Uh, this could be a dwelling loan, mm-hmm. so you could use it to buy a home. 
You could also use it to buy a motor vehicle, which a loan, to, which is used in the for the purposes of your uh, business, and it could also be used for uh, stock acquisition loans if you're buying back stock of your company as well. So the the key thing here is that repayment within one year, and um, so if it's if the money is loaned to you from the comp- company, and then you you've repaid that within one year after the end of the taxation year of the corporation, then it's going to be exempt. And uh, so I'm just going to quickly go through a little study on that. And uh, if we won't, well, we won't have enough time, but I'm going to, well, I'll start it out with a situation where in this case, Keith, who owns his operating company, and it has a year end of July 31st. So he takes a $50,000 loan from the operating company on November 15th, and he makes no principal or interest payments, but he repays the company in full uh, about two years later mm-hmm. in 2019. So when we come back from the break, I'll tell you how he's going to be taxed on that and what he could have done to remedy that situation. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're talking about shareholder loans. Yeah, the example was, in this case, uh, Keith owned shares of an operating company, his business, and uh, and the year end was July 31st. He took a $50,000 loan from the company on November 15th, 2017. And he made no principal or interest payments, but he repaid the whole thing in full on September 30th, 2019. So from a tax per- for tax purposes, because he didn't repay that within the one year, he has to include the full $50,000 as income mm-hmm. in his 2017 tax year. But then when he repays that money in 2019, he gets a $50,000 deduction. Mm-hmm. Okay, So basically that is an offset, uh, but he didn't have the benefit of the tax income uh, the, that he had to pay. So if he was smart, he could have uh, avoided that in- inclusion and in income if he repaid it on July 31st, 2019, instead of September 30th, 2019, mm-hmm. because it would have been within the one year after the last year end of the business. Right. And uh, assuming that the loan was repaid on time, and he did that, there still would be some taxable benefit. So the government, the CRA uses what's called a prescribed rate, which is a benefit uh, which is given to you by having that money. And it's 2% per year. So his cost would have been $1,000, 50 grand times 2%. And that's all the tax he would have to pay tax on one grand instead of 50. So shareholder loans, lots of options around that and, uh, and some strategies. Again, it's all part of your financial plan. Yes. And you know what? There's a lot of people that own businesses now. And because of that small business deduction, they, they're holding money in them. Mm-hmm. And a couple things, uh, first and foremost, is not to simply leave the money in a whatever bank account because they're paying zero. Right. And that this is the one thing I'm finding a lot of is these businesses, because they say, well, I don't want to pay tax on it. Well, they don't have it invested. Yeah. It's still an investment. Treat it like a, an RSP or a pension fund and get it properly invested. Mm. It's interesting. I was looking through different investments, um, which we do every day, but to, if you were 62 this year, that happens to be the average age a person retires. Mm. Okay. And that means you would have been born in 1957, mm-hmm. okay? 
Well, using U.S. figures, the S&P, Standard & Poor's 500, was, the index was worth 40, which is in 1957. And now it's worth 3,135. Mm -hmm. Okay. It has gone up 78 times over those 62 years. Mm -hmm. So if you happen to have gotten an inheritance for $10,000 back in 1957, I know a lot of people say, I'll buy a house. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and you know what? To be frank, uh, if you put a 10000 towards a house of 57, it probably isn't far off 780000 right yeah, now yeah. because that's what it would be worth had you invested that in simply the U.S. stock market. Mm -hmm. Okay? Canadian stock market would be not too dissimilar. Well, on that note, you're sitting here with 780000 but you didn't have to pay any property taxes or anything on that house. Mm -hmm. You didn't have any repairs to worry about. You had, actually you had nothing to worry about other than the market goes up and down. So I think, okay, what is that rate of return? 7.38%. I think, okay, that's pretty good, but it's not as good as I thought it would be. Well, the reason it's not quite as good as I thought is because it didn't include dividends. Mm -hmm. Okay? And dividends generally add about another couple percent to your return. So 7.3 is simply the growth in the um, Standard Poor's um, 500, and you would have got another couple percent in growth in dividends. Mm -hmm. Well, those dividends, it's kind of interesting. They have gone up 35 times since you put your money in. Mm -hmm. So on that original 10,000, let's say you got 2%. Um, that would have been $200 you would have received in dividends that year. Well, you would have got 32 times that now. Mm -hmm. So 32 times that $200. Mm -hmm. And it works out that you are getting now, based on your original money invested, 145% return just in dividends every year. Mm -hmm. So on your $10,000, you're getting $14,500 a year in dividends from your original $10,000. There is no GIC or, or guarantee investment that is paying, that grows in value. Mm -hmm. uh, there's those step-up GICs, but I don't really count those because they end after five years and they really are just averaging a rate of return. But in these cases, when you're owning great companies, as they do well, they increase the dividends. Mm -hmm. I know there are some years where they may decrease the dividends or hold the dividend for a period of time before they reestablish them. So they are not guaranteed. But at the exact same time, would you want a guarantee that is basically doing slightly over inflation or would you like something that has gone up 78 times over your 62-year lifespan so far? Not to mention retirement because the mm -hmm. average person spends a third of their life in retirement. And it's, it's quite interesting. Inflation in that same period of time was only nine times. So if you put in your 10,000, inflation would say that 10,000 is now what you need is worth 90,000. Right. In the S&P is worth 780,000. That's a great growth on your investment, plus dividends, mm -hmm. okay? And so what people often worry about is losing money. That's always the biggest fear. I, you know, when you we're, we're talking to people investing, what's your biggest fear? I don't want to lose money. Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately, the equity markets, you will have bad years. Mm -hmm. It's guaranteed. In fact, in the last 74 years, there's been 15 negative years. And the average decline in those is um, 30%. Now, when I say negative years, those 15 bear markets. Mm -hmm. And a bear market is, is any time it's been a drop of over 20%, 20% or, or greater. So 15 bear markets in 74 years, and that's one in every five years. Mm -hmm. So, but it's kind of interesting. Three of those years, 1998, 2011, and 2018, were technically not bear markets. Mm -hmm. Last year, funny enough, 
the market dropped a lot in December. It was only 19.8% drop, not 20. <laughs> okay. Didn't count. <laughs> but during, it was an intraday where it actually hit a bear market. It was over 20%. So basically, if you want, if you have to deal with one in five years of being slightly negative or, or major, 30% drop, but at the end of the day, you're going to end up with a far greater return, beat inflation by a, a large margin. Is it worth it? I say so, but if you can't live with it, then you should not be an equity mar- equity investor. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank have you a great week, Scott. Thank you, Scott.